My name's Tom Jennings and this is the 24 Frames cast and on today's episode I will be having a look at Andrea Arnold's adaption of one of my favourite novels of all time, Wuthering Heights. I will also be having a pretty big rant about the state of blogs, podcasts and forums in general. But before I begin properly, I want to start with a public service announcement. Now, some of you who listen to this show might know that I um, always like to do a Blu-ray review and I had every intention of taking a look at the new David Lynch Blu-ray box set which has just been released here in Britain. Now, the box set contained such masterpieces as Eraserhead, uh, Blue Velvet, Lost Highway, uh, Twin Peaks, Firewalk With Me and the one I was looking forward to the most which was... Um, might surprise you actually which is the adaption of June which is a film I absolutely love and I have I kind of I hesitate to call it a guilty pleasure because I um, have such an affinity for it that I kind of rank it really kind of quite high up there with one of my favorite science fiction films of all time however um, if you were thinking of purchasing this box set for the love of God do not because I'm afraid to say Universal have well and truly, royally screwed it up. It is an absolute travesty of a collection. And it's not so much the films, obviously. I really do enjoy the work of David Lynch. It is the presentation of them are absolutely appalling in some instances, especially the Twin Peaks uh, disc, which is not even 1080p. It's a 1080i. And... The sound is absolutely abysmal. The overall presentation of the films it does not do them justice at all. And mercifully, there has been a um, audio issue on the file with me disc, and I was able to send it back and get my money back from Amazon because really, this is an absolute terrible way of treating these films. Shame on Universal for thinking this was acceptable. You, you, you think, you know, the reason why we were all told to kind of go over to Blu-ray and the kind of the big selling point was that you know, this was going to be the best quality we'd ever seen and quite simply they've just chucked this out and slapped the name David Lynch on it and hope it will sell a few copies and the outcry, especially on Amazon, has been quite loud. And it's not one of those kind of bandwagons that everyone seems to be jumping on. There really does seem to be a genuine sense of anger at just how poor this box is. The films are also available individually. I think I might pick up a Razorhead because the actual Blu-ray that isn't that bad. And I, I, I do really enjoy it. But I um, I was so disappointed with the transfer of June. I kind of I went on a few forums and things like that and noticed that um, there was a... A Blu-ray of it put out uh, in America a couple of years ago, which I've actually managed to get shipped over. It was only cost me £6, and the film looks and sounds absolutely fantastic on that. So I, I'm not too disappointed in the fact that I've still got my Blu-ray copy of June, but I was really looking forward to Blue Velvet as well. And again, they've, it's, it's not anything to write home about what they've done. So avoid it for the love of God. And it obviously might mean that this episode's a little bit shorter because I won't be doing a, uh, a Blu-ray segment on it. But... Never mind, um, hopefully in the future I, the studio actually listens to the outcry from the public and actually puts another box set out, as they did I seem to remember with the first of a Stanley Kubrick box set that came out on DVD, but this is certainly one to avoid. And um, yeah, really, really angry actually that uh, in this kind of day and age where you know the kind of the picture and the sound are the biggest selling points of these discs that they should put out something that is so substandard. So... Avoid at all costs, um, even even if this box set, I think I paid something like £55 for it, even if I saw it reduced in a few months down to £15 or something like that, I still wouldn't pick it up because um, it, it, I, I refuse to give anyone money for putting out such a substandard load of crap. So put that down on your watch list. David Lynch Blu-ray box set, avoid at all costs. Okay. So I'm afraid to say it is going to be rant time. Now, when I first started the 24 Frames cast, I wanted to do a podcast that was a little bit different from the other types of shows that were out were. And really, I did not want to do a weekly review podcast. I had every intention of having a different variety of shows 
Each one's slightly different. That's why we have things like the retrospective episodes where we take a filmmaker at the moment. It's Ridley Scott. Have the close-up episodes where I pick one film and kind of dissect it. And I have these episodes where I kind of talk about a variety of topics and uh, you know pick out a few films. And what I really wanted my listeners to have was a kind of varied selection. I didn't want there just to be one type of show that was kind of quite formulaic and same old, same old week after week. Now, part of my wanting to do the show as well, because I wanted to pick films that I thought perhaps people might not have heard of, or perhaps don't normally get the love and attention they deserve. And of course, you know, I am doing a retrospective on Ridley Scott, one of the most kind of obliquely um, Hollywood of directors currently working. I don't think you can get any more A-list really. But when I look back over the past few episodes, I think there is quite a diverse and broad range of cinema. And certainly I've still got a kind of a long way to go because I want to do some more silent films. I want to get some kind of animation in there. But I think we're up something like episode 25 now. If I look back, I sort of, I'm quite pleased with the fact that I can honestly say I've covered quite a wide range of cinema from Hollywood classics to unknown science fiction films to lost dealing films to Japanese samurai films. It's a fairly eclectic mix of films. Now, one of the things that you find about doing this on a podcast is that your podcast will never probably hit the heights of something like slash film or film spotting. And I'm quite happy that my podcast is where it needs to be. I think over the past few months, especially the listenership has increased quite a lot. And I've had a a kind of lot of positive and very encouraging feedback from people who listen to the show. To give you kind of some perspective, I did an episode on an Ealing film called Paul of London. And I can honestly say that the show has received the least amount of downloads on any that I have ever released. If you were to be harsh, you would say it was something of a flop episode. However, I have also had a couple of emails from people um, from around the world. Uh, I think one of them was based down in Paraguay or somewhere like that. And someone from South Africa who wrote virtually kind of like eight page essays on how much they loved the film and how much they enjoyed listening to the episode. So for the kind of hours of preparation and watching the film that I put into it, I actually felt that simply getting those emails was worth the investment of time in me actually doing it in the first place. And to be brutally honest with you, I don't really kind of have uh, targets or anything like that when I release a show for downloads, but it's just nice to know that some people, even as far away as they are, enjoyed that show and it was really worth it for me for actually doing it. And on the whole, the feedback that I received about the 24 frames cast is quite positive. And I I think it's the thing about podcasts is that if you don't like a show, you don't, well, I certainly wouldn't anyway feel compelled to email and contact the people who did the show to tell them that I didn't like it. I would rather just listen to the show. And if it wasn't for me, and this has happened, I've listened to a few episodes of a show and I've said it's not for me. Um, There might be issues with that I I have with it, I just don't kind of vibe off it that well, and I unsubscribe. I would never ever think to email the people that did it and tell them I would be unsubscribing and essentially tell them why I don't like the show. It's strange because perhaps I would be inclined to do it if it was one of the kind of official podcasts that gets put out there, you know, like the 20th Century Fox Prometheus official podcast or what have you, because I kind of think those ones are kind of almost kind of a free game as it were but when it's someone who's like myself who has just kind of decided one day they're going to do a podcast I don't think it's necessary to email them and let them know I'll be unsubscribing however a few months ago I received an email from a listener who told me that they were going to unsubscribe from the podcast and I have absolutely no problem with someone making this decision however the crux of the reason why this person was going to be unsubscribing was quite surprising to me. Now, it was quite a long email, so I'm not going to kind of bore you by reading it out. But essentially, 
The reason why they had decided they didn't want to continue listening to the 24 frames podcast was because that I spoke about films that they had never heard of. And as a result, they had absolutely no interest in what I was talking about and couldn't understand why anyone would want to listen to a podcast that just spoke about obscure films. Now, I made a decision at the time that I wasn't going to reply to this person's email. And it was because I couldn't really compose something that didn't come across as being, well, how I would perceive something that would perhaps look as if I was incredibly bitter or angry at this email, because I wasn't at all, but I simply couldn't articulate my kind of counterpoints to what they were saying. And essentially, it perhaps might veer into this kind of point of arrogance here. They weren't saying it was the delivery or anything like that they had a problem with. In fact, they were quite um, complimentary as to some of the episodes, especially the Watchmen and the Ridley Scott episode. But I couldn't honestly see the fact that that they decided that because I spoke about films that they had never heard of before, that this was a genuine reason to have such a strong critical opposition to what I was doing. I can only kind of relate this to my own experience, which was when I used to listen to podcasts like Cinema Slave. Now, although I had heard of a great deal many of the films Joe Barlow used to talk about on Cinema Slave, I, for whatever reason, hadn't either watched them or had never kind of really thought about them in any great detail. And what I used to find this thing to Cinema Slave was Joe would talk about a certain director, producer, actor, whatever, and I would kind of go and seek those out and watch them. And, and I remember, unfortunately, I don't think it would ever get to a finish, but Joe did a series of films, um, so a series of podcasts on the producer Val Luton. And there was a rather brilliant box set that got put out. And I remember I kind of paid quite a, a fair price to have it imported over from America. And the kind of the reason why... I decided to pick up this pot, this box set, sorry, was because Joe spoke so enthusiastically about it and I had seen um, The Cat People, which is one of the films off it, that I thought, well, you know, why not? I'll pick this up. And it was an absolute joy going through this box set and it sits quite proudly on my shelf today and it's something that I will always go back to. And there were plenty of other films as well that kind of Joe pointed me towards, as was the case with... Uh, Hollywood Saloon podcast, for example, um, there were films that they used to speak about on that, which again I'd actually heard of, but I'd never really kind of thought of in any great, great detail. And certainly, you know, one of those films which I picked up from that podcast was Speed Racer, which is a great science fiction film, and I've had many kind of um, hours of joy watching it. So I couldn't really understand why someone would not want to hear about films that they'd never heard before. And even if, you know, it was a case of perhaps picking them up at some stage and then listening to the podcast afterwards or just listening to the episode anyway and perhaps trying to kind of garner some enthusiasm for the film even without seeing it just by listening to the podcast. However, they had decided that my podcast was inferior to other ones and there were some other um, podcasts kind of mentioned, especially uh, Slash Film and Film Spotting in which the author of this email had basically said were relevant and interesting because they spoke about contemporary films. And a few weeks ago, I was looking for some more podcasts because one of the things I I, I work from home quite a lot of the week, and it's nice to obviously kind of listen to other shows whilst I'm doing some work. And I became quite kind of frustrated, really, because I couldn't find any that seemed to talk about anything other than contemporary Hollywood and the kind of subjects that have been done to death really and at this juncture I really must give a shout out to um, someone who will quite soon be coming on the 24 Frames cast which is a chap called Joachim Thiessen who does the Film Man podcast now that's man spelled in the Michael Mann way and Joachim has actually started his own podcast and it's something of a breath of fresh air because like the 24 frames cast he is talking about films which aren't necessarily kind of coming straight out in the cinemas so far he's an episode on on Haraki and a John Frankenheimer film called Seconds and they've both been absolutely excellent and 
this is the type of podcast that I most connect with, especially as well. You know, if you want to kind of check out things like the Midnight Movie, Movie Cow, sorry, the Midnight Movie Cowboys podcast, and uh, with Stuart and Hunter, because they don't seem to uh, just simply pick. You know, let's have a talk about Men in Black three. They have just done an episode on the Avengers, but I think uh, that was a very interesting episode on the basis of Stuart's standpoint on it. But again, it's one of those podcasts that doesn't seem to adhere to this idea that you have to talk about whatever has come by your multiplex that week. So I spent some time looking for some new podcasts and I couldn't really find anything apart from this absolute obsession with contemporary Hollywood cinema. And it was the release of the Avengers that was for me really the kind of final straw where I eventually snapped. Now, just to make a few things clear, I really enjoyed The Avengers. I found it funny, I found it very entertaining, and given the amount of money that was spent on that film, I think to find it pretty good was really the lowest expectation I could really have. There was no reason why that film had should have been bad and it certainly wasn't I think it was well worth the kind of the build-up that's been going on and I suppose the kind of the prequels that we've had in the in the form of Thor, Captain America, Iron Man 2, all of those films I have in their own right really enjoyed but let's be kind of very clear and very honest about this. The Avengers was not a great film. It does very little that is original. I found the ending to be entirely predictable and I thought it suffered from the fact that many of its set pieces were simply there to dazzle us, which again, you know, it's a big Hollywood blockbuster film starring a variety of some superheroes who we have kind of come to love over the past few years. Yet the reaction amongst Facebook groups, podcasts and blogs was as if the Avengers was the second coming of cinema. Now, of course, I do understand why people enjoyed it, but, and I really will be looking forward to buying it on Blu-ray. You know, I am quite kind of in a sad kind of geeky way looking forward to going back and watching Thor, Captain America, Iron Man, Iron Man 2, The Incredible Hulk, what have you, and then watching the film again. I think it would be quite a kind of a fun weekend of superhero stuff, but Really, honestly, seriously, I cannot understand why people were going so crazy for it. And the reason, I believe, is a degree of ignorance. It is at this juncture that I must sort of offer a kind of um, premeditated apology, which is things may get a little bit pretentious here. So please do bear with me because I think I am kind of working toward quite a pertinent point. It is blatantly apparent that for a great deal of people who proclaim that they love film, that they only focus on a very, very small section of it, which is American cinema. This is, of course, a deep mine of cinematic joy. And, you know, I make absolutely no bones about it. My favourite period of cinema is 1970s American. I absolutely love so many films from that period. And I really do think it is a time which I think is probably the epitome of why I love films. But Hollywood has never been the torchbearer for cinema and it never will be. It is, of course, the most commercially important for the industry. And you know, that might sound slightly kind of hyperbolic, but there's an entire industry around the world based on Hollywood because you know, my local cinema, for example, only really shows Hollywood films. And of course, the money it generates goes into the British economy. It is, there is no denying that Hollywood is a vital part of the economics of cinema. However, the default complaint that I seem to come across again, time and time and again on podcasts, blogs, Facebook groups, is that cinema is not what it used to be. 
And what I think these people are actually saying is the fact that the night before they watched The Godfather again, or something like that, and then the next thing they saw was a trailer for a new Adam Sandler film. And they compare those two pieces of work and then summarise that each is representative of both the past and the present of cinema. And it is an entirely wrong and inaccurate conclusion to come to. It is here that the main crux of my argument is formed. Yes, I think there has been a very noticeable dip in the amount of quality American cinema in the past three years. But by the simple expansion of one's palette, the quality of what people see is actually there. It's just, it's not coming to you, you have got to go to it. And it is most certainly not found in Hollywood. World cinema has and is a constant source of exciting new talent and interesting works from truly some of the greatest directors of our age. Occasionally, there, there is a film like Old Boy, which people go absolutely nuts for, but very quickly they seem to retreat back into the shell of Hollywood and American cinema. And I don't really understand why this is, because about two years ago, I discovered the films of Michelangelo Antonioni. And although he's kind of hardly contemporary, he was a director who I'd heard a lot about before, but for various reasons decided that I was never really going to bother. And when I first began watching his films, I was kind of mesmerised by them. And it has kind of come to change the way that I actually view and think about cinema. It was a genuine pleasure watching these films and has been re-watching them since. And there are countless others to talk about, something like Jean Renoir or Bellatar. There is enough quality cinema to keep you going for the rest of your life. Yet the vast majority seem thoroughly uninterested in exploring these new pastures. And there are some kind of default arguments that I hear and I will kind of give three of them here. One of them is subtitles. Now, if subtitles are a genuine reason why you won't watch a film, then the only way I can kind of succinctly put this is that you are an absolute fucking idiot. There is no reason on earth why subtitles should act as some kind of barrier for you not to watch films. Because believe me, once you start watching films with subtitles, you very quickly even don't even realize that they're there and it becomes easier and easier after each film you watch then i hear which is what i've called a cultural excuse that people don't want to stray too far from what they know because they feel that they won't be able to understand what is going on now certainly there are things that are lost in translation with certain audiences for example the significant the significance of bodies of water in Japanese cinema but I have never in my life watched a film where it is so baffling to me what is going on because of the amount of cultural references that I have not been able to understand it and indeed the more you watch the more you learn and the more you will come to appreciate world cinema and then there is of course the multiplex excuse which is the fact that most modern multiplexes don't play a very wide selection of films. No, I would completely agree with that statement. There is one in a, in Manchester. There is one cinema which shows kind of art house. So I'm saying art house stuff, but basically stuff that doesn't come out from Hollywood. There is one cinema, and I, I've been there a handful of times on the basis that really the times that the films are on are quite annoying, and it's a bit of a pain in the ass to get to. And of course, yes, you know, the local multiplex might not be showing the latest in Polish cinema. But, you know, we live in an age of Netflix and love film. And, you know, is it really going to hurt to add some kind of slightly more obscure titles to your list? I would contest not. Now, I understand, of course, there is the need for entertainment. Watching Andrzej Tarkovsky's Stalker is not going to have you whooping for joy and on the edge of your seat. 
but I can pretty much guarantee that Rome Open City or Army of Shadows and something like The Vanishing will. A few weeks ago, Martin Scorsese posted a list of the 100 films that had most shaped who he was as a filmmaker. And I was pleased as to how many of these films I'd actually seen. And I was also curious at some of the choices that he'd put on there because I kind of considered them to be um, a little bit suspect in a way. So I revisited a few of his selection and I enjoyed some of the others that I had not seen before. Turning to a Facebook group, I noticed that all this list had done was spur a debate, which were things like, which is better, Taxi Driver or The Departed? That tracking shot in Goodfellas, the boxing in Raging Bull or the swearing in Casino seemed to be the only topics of conversation. There was not a single person who was excitedly relaying the joy of watching something like Rocco and his brothers for the first time or talking about anything other than what their favourite Scorsese films and coming up with endless lists as to what were the best moments in Scorsese's career. And yes, I completely agree. Scorsese is a great filmmaker, worthy of praise and debate. But what should have been a catalyst for people to expand their knowledge of film became nothing more than a platform to celebrate complete and utter ignorance. I feel alienated by this type of film appreciation. In a way, it completely bores me. I don't really care what people's opinions are as to what Joe Pesci's best Martin Scorsese film is because what happens is that these types of debates just ultimately become about people shouting their opinion at each other and it's this kind of list-based film criticism that I also think becomes the standard method by which people judge films. Recently Prometheus arrived in the cinema and my own reaction to the film was very mixed. When I heard that the film was not going to be a direct prequel to Alien, I was actually quite pleased. Then upon actually seeing the film, I was actually rather hoping it was just a prequel to Alien. However, my critical standpoint was not based on the fact of what I wanted it to be. Moreover, it was based on what I saw and what I reacted to. I actually think, in fact, removing the Alien connection entirely, or as much as the film allows, help clarify my reasons why I didn't like it more. Yet true to form, the internet devolved into a swarm of nitpick-based moaning. It ruins the alien ecology, bleated one person. It doesn't explain enough, moaned another, or it explains too much, said someone else. The characters should do this when they should do that. Now, I had issues with many of the character choices and how they reacted to the situations they were on. I actually just think it came down to very, very poor screenwriting. I think Prometheus squandered the possibility for something far greater by trying to dazzle the audience with scene after scene of neither scary or indeed necessary Hollywood trailer moments. Indeed, the film seemed more focused on delivering a typical experience expected of modern event cinema, as opposed to a more cerebral affair that was so frustratingly teased at during its better moments. No one spoke of the film's deeper themes, the notion of creation, for example, which is a fundamentally massive issue in our lives because it really does actually help shape our outlook on life. No, instead, all we had was lists and nitpicks and people kind of quoting the name Christopher Nolan as if his simple attachment to the project would have instantly made it some kind of modern science fiction classic. It is a truly sad state of affairs and it leaves me thinking once and again about that email chastising me for talking about films no one has heard of. Expanding my film diet over the past years has had a direct and profound effect on my life. On September 24th this year, I will spend three days filming a short film that I have written and produced. The film is being made with a reasonable budget and is being crewed by some of the most gifted technicians in the region. All of this really kind of 
comes about from kind of dreams I had when I was younger, but most in particular it comes from two years ago when I watched F.W. Murnau's Sunrise, and it was a film that I just picked up on Blu-ray from Masters of Cinema, and the film absolutely mesmerised me, but it also made me think in a way that I had never thought about cinema, and it actually made my brain work differently when I was associating how I wanted to make films, and it might seem slightly hyperbolic to say that a film actually changed the way my my brain processes information, but it is entirely true. And all this came from a silent film that I was well aware existed but had never bothered to watch because for some reason I was put off by it by the fact that the characters in it didn't speak to each other in synchronised sound. Yet what a stupid thing to actually think. Silent cinema is the purest form of filmmaking I have ever seen. With no words, just a language of cinema, actors and directors told some of the most moving, gripping stories in existence. That is the universality of cinema. And through the ages and across the world, films have been and continue to be made, which will change perception and expand people's imagination. Yet the vast majority seem to just focus on the output of one particular country. I love big budget cinema as much as the next person. Christopher Nolan is one of my favourite filmmakers. Yet he is not the saviour of modern cinema. He is not the benchmark by which everything must be judged and compared against. You can list his films in whatever order you want. None of them are certified masterpieces. And if you believe they are, then I implore you to take stock and seek out more films away from what you would normally watch. Now you may find yourself hating the films of Michael Haneke as I do to an extent, but equally you may find yourself falling in love with the films of Henri Clouseau who is a filmmaker who could give Hitchcock a run for his money in the suspense department. At the very least you will learn to appreciate why the likes of Martin Scorsese do what they do and next time a proclamation is made of that's the best dialogue seen in a film ever, you might actually have a platform to, of knowledge to base your view on. So I would like to apologise for my ranting. It will never happen again, hopefully. However, it has something which I have felt necessary to get off my chest for quite some time. So next up, a review of Andrea Arnold's Wuthering Heights. One of my favourite novels, and I think it is universally accepted as being something of a classic, is Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights. It is a novel that actually benefits with the existence of cinema because its prose are so evocative, you can't help but associate them with epic sweeping vistas. I find it even more astonishing that Emily Bronte was in her 20s when she wrote it, such is the level of sophistication in the piece. And let's not forget, it was written in 1846, which was hardly a time of equality. But what is Wuthering Heights all about? Well, up in the Yorkshire Moor is a house, the titular Wuthering Heights. It is an isolated, weather-worn old place. And one day, the master of the house, Mr Earnshaw, 
brings home a young boy who he found on the streets of Liverpool. The boy's origins are never truly explained. He has darker than normal skin, speaks in a strange dialect, and is, to say the least, a little rough around the edges. It's never ex truly explained why Earnshaw has brought the boy back. Is it pity? Is it the fact that he's an illegitimate son? And where has he actually come from? Perhaps he's even a stowaway or a gypsy. No one really knows, but what we do know about this young man is that he is going to be called Heathcliff. Earnshaw has two other children. There is Hinley, his son, who takes an instant hatred of Heathcliff, and daughter Catherine, with whom Heathcliff will come to love. And it is their relationship that will cause generations of chaos to come. Their pair are constantly together until one day they stumble across the Lintons, a rich family a few hills away from Wuthering Heights. Catherine, who, when with Heathcliff, is something of a wild child, suddenly becomes subdued by the Lintons and eventually ends up marrying the Lintons' son, Edgar. Heathcliff disappears, heartbroken for a number of years. When he returns, however, things have changed a great deal. Heathcliff is very rich, unexplainably. He wears expensive clothes and has come to reclaim Catherine as well as exact revenge on just about anyone who has wronged him, including Hinley and Hinley's son, Edgar, and even Edgar's sister, Isabella. Now, I won't kind of go too far into what happens next. I can only implore you to read the book. This is not a case where I would recommend watching the film first, but I really do beg you read the book first. Now you might kind of have guessed that I do have a certain affection for this novel and it's very easy to get sniffy about adaptions. Please see my Watchmen episode for more on that. But I don't, I'm not one of these who when I hear that someone is going to be making an adaption of something I love I don't suddenly sit there rolling my eyes and making a checklist of things that I have to see in the film otherwise I won't like it. Indeed, unless there are clear warning signs, say for example, Brett Ratner directing a version of The Forever War with Justin Bieber in the lead role and a public statement that all homosexual references in the film are going to be removed, I'm pretty much excited when a property I love is coming to the big screen. Now, Wuthering Heights has had several film and TV adaptions over the year. In 1939, there was a William Wyner version starring Laurence Olivier. There was another version in 1970 with Timothy Dalton. In 1992, we had another one with Ralph Fiennes and Juliet Binoche. And recently, there has been a TV adaption with Tom Hardy in it. Having seen many of these adaptions, and they are only a few of the many that there are, they all have their merits and their flaws. I'm however yet to see one which I consider to be my definitive version or at least one that I would revisit as my go-to Wuthering Heights adaption. Much of Wuthering Heights is left open to the imagination and I have a very strong personal adaption of the text myself which I think perhaps clouds my judgement of others. So when it was announced that Andrea Arnold was going to be making Wuthering Heights I was actually quite excited how would she approach it and how much of her vision for the project would strike a chord with me. The result is on one hand a minor revelation and on the other it is massively frustrating and I have been wrestling with my thoughts on this film ever since I have watched it which experience has told me that this is actually a good thing as it often um, would seem to suggest there was something in the film that is worthy of me going back to it. The first and most striking element is that Arnold has cast a black actor in the role of Heathcliff. Now don't think for a minute this is whimsy or some attempt at courting debate or political correctness. It is an entirely legitimate choice to make. There is a great deal of speculation as to where Heathcliff has come from and it is indeed it's part of this charisma that makes him such a mysterious and interesting person. What it does in this context of the adaption is that it separates him immediately from the other characters in Wuthering Heights. He really is a true outsider in this world 
and I found that it is for Catherine even more powerful. He simply ignores everything around him and focuses on her. I also think it is a genuine reason in the context of the story, and of course this is never spoken, as to why Catherine would reject Heathcliff for Edgar. Heathcliff is a hard person to like, yet I found myself warming to him a little bit more than I actually expected, and the actor playing him, James Housen, also, who is an unknown actor at this point, really does a fine job with Heathcliff, to a point, as I will get to later. But for me, I think the most striking element of the film, other than the casting of Heathcliff, is Arnold herself. Now, I've not seen any of her previous films, although I do own Fish Tank in the Criterion Collection, and I'm quite kind of um, keen to check it out now on the basis of seeing this. In my mind, I've always seen Wuthering Heights as being pure cinema. The Yorkshire Moors are a stunning location. They are utterly bleak and the kind of type of place that David Lean would sit in awe of, I would wonder. In short, they're a place of widescreen dreams and they are absolutely made for cinema, I believe. However, Arnold and her director of photography Robbie Ryan have opted for a 4-3 or an academy ratio aspect for the film. Now this choice is going to alienate some in the age of widescreen televisions and enhanced 16-9 images. We don't expect to see black bars at the side of our screens. Yet Wuthering Heights as an adaption has never looked as good as it does here. The location is an integral part of the story, it is a metaphor, it is an influence and it even has a possible supernatural effect on the characters in it. Now for those of you abroad, or you know, anyone who doesn't know what the Yorkshire Moors are actually like, they are completely devoid of trees, it's simply too windy for anything to grow more than two feet. And without any CGI or computer trickery, you get a true sense of how hard life in this world is. It is both appealing to those who live it and harsh and unwelcoming to those who visit it. The very name Heathcliff um, could be a place on the moors and he and Catherine run around as children in the mud and up small hills and in the bogs. And you see how, how at one they are with the place. Arnold and Ryan's work made me draw an instant comparison with Terence Malick's The New World. And indeed, thematically, the two stories are very similar. Like Pocahontas, Catherine is a child of her environment who is inserted into a society that is alien to her. Arnold, however, lacks the subtlety of Malick. Visually, her representations of Catherine are quite obvious. As a child, she runs around in the free with the wind bellowing. When she's married to Edgar, her life is summarised with a close-up of a bird in a cage. It is not, as some people observed, as being crude filmmaking, but it does highlight the film's overriding bias towards imagery and sound over dialogue. Bronte wrote the novel from the perspective of different characters recounting what happened in flashbacks. There is no voiceover here, and the dialogue between characters is stripped back to simple and at times very brutal exchanges. Hindley comments to his father he will never like Heathcliff, and we instantly know why. He's a nigger, he barks before trying his hardest to make his life a living hell. Likewise, Heathcliff opening words to the Linton family are just as crude. Fuck you cunts, he says. And again, don't mistake the crudeness of the language as being there for shock value. Bronte goes to great lengths to tell us that the unspeakable language between characters, but I dare say the 1840s were a tad more zealous than we are now. The film's visuals do suffer from one very glaring affliction, however. It is simply way too dark at times, and it is almost impossible to tell what is actually going on. The immediate observation is that this is in keeping with the reality of the world. It would have been lit by lanterns and fires, and you know, there wouldn't have been any kind of electricity but it doesn't help gloss over the fact that at times it is actually impossible to see what is going on on screen. And when there is so very little talking, it doesn't really give you very much to kind of grasp what is actually going on in a scene. 
The film's editing style as well also made me think of Malik, and it is common knowledge that he finds his films in the editing room. This, to many, and myself included to an extent, seems a really kind of incredible way of making films. But what I find is that with his editing style, you become a kind of interloper in scenes. We arrive just before or after something is occurring through jump cuts that only represent a very small passage of time within the scene. This too is how Wuthering Heights is cut together. You don't hear characters talking, but you know instinctively by the way they are acting or reacting what has been said, or indeed what does not need to be said between characters. For some, this is a bridge too far, although only needing the tiniest amount of relatively creative thought to piece together what is going on. Some need more in the way of dialogue, and this is very much a film that you have to tune into in order to appreciate. It is appreciation that is the key to Wuthering Heights. As much as I enjoyed certain aspects of it, my reaction to it was has not been overwhelmingly positive. The performances are very patchy. Houston and Kaya Sorelio are as good as Heathcliff and Kathy, but other characters like Lee Shaw as Hindley are actually quite poor, and although primarily about Heathcliff and Kathy, the other characters in the work and are vital in building the kind of picture of what is going on, and I don't really think they are given much justice here, and I think they are very, very forgettable to an extent when they are so unforgettable in the novel. Arnold strips the characters down to what effectively feels like very vapid bit parts. They are, for the most part, thoroughly unmentionable. Heathcliff is a great exploiter and tormentor and he actually managed to marry Edgar's sister Isabella with the sole purpose of getting back at Edgar. Yet in the film it is almost inexplicable as to why she decides to marry him because of his buffet because of his behaviour and how really we don't really kind of know why she is attracted to him. There are some also other questionable choices, um, especially there are some also some other kind of questionable choices which really kind of made me wonder what Arnold was trying to achieve. There's a scene where Hindley and his wife are having sex outside Wuthering Heights in the dead of night, casually observed by Heathcliff. This seemed completely unnecessary because there was just no sort of explanation as to why they had decided to go outside and have sex in the bloody rain and misery and it seemed like it was just there for Heathcliff to watch and get angry at Hindley at. It didn't seem to lack any type of kind of genuine reason for actually existing. We know that he hated Hindley and I think there were kind of better ways of expanding upon this relationship. Likewise there's a scene where Heathcliff is being whipped by one of Hindley's uh, kind of I suppose foreman for slacking on the job and again this seemed totally ridiculous I can't I don't remember this being in the book but it certainly doesn't need to be in the film it seems ridiculously over the top but to me at least the biggest issue with Wuthering Heights is that I never truly felt the depth of feeling between Heathcliff and Kathy the mental torture and the hurt are all present and correct but these are simply empty vessels to agree without the underpinning of the mad devotion between the two it actually feels like we are being told to simply assume this without actually being shown it in a convincing manner were you to remove Wuthering Heights connotations from the film it would be a beautiful looking if not necessarily convincing tale of doomed romance Arnold also ignores the resolution of the novel and I can kind of understand why I think the canvas of film or at least possible studios and distribute based restrictions hurt the story to agree at just over two hours it sim it feels like it needs more time to breathe and instead we feels way too rushed at times and it is simply too hard to really honestly believe that Heathcliff and Cathy are this veritable force of nature, tragically torn apart from each other. The kind of the genius of Bronte's work is that you feel a weight as to what is happening, as if the story has far-reaching influence beyond the scope of its environment. And this film doesn't. It lacks a certain gravitas and deeper, wider connection than you actually see. 
having said that at times is an absolutely electrifying piece of filmmaking the proximity of the cameras to the characters imbues it with an intimacy and an urgency that kind of manifests itself in a feeling where you honestly don't know what is going to happen next a character might simply walk into a room or they might smash someone in the face you simply don't ever truly know it's a very bold film in some respect there is no bombastic score no stars and the directorial style that demands you pay attention and keep up. I have a strange feeling it will grow on me with each viewing, yet paradoxically I don't have much motivation to go back and revisit it anytime soon. Is this going to be the definitive version for me? No, but I think I can safely say up until this point it is my favourite, and from a visual perspective I simply cannot recommend it enough. So that is going to be it for this episode of the 24 Framescast. Many thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at 24 Framescast. You can come to the blog at 24framescast.blogspot.com. And you can email me. And I do, if you do like the show, please do email me and get in contact. I really do appreciate it at 24framescast at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening. And I'll be back soon with some more. Thanks. Bye.